Good morning. How are you doing? Good. Well, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to be with you. So let me ask you a fun question as we start off today. Have you ever felt like you're living a boring life? Have you ever been told you were living a boring life? Even better, right? Uh, I came across in a book that I read called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years by Donald Miller. An encounter that he had, he was writing a movie about a memoir he had written, and the people writing the movie with him told him that his life was too boring. Listen to this. I felt defensive as though my life wasn't going anywhere. I mean, I knew it wasn't going anywhere, but it didn't seem okay for anybody else to say it. So I tried to make my face look like I was thinking something other than the fact that Steve didn't think that my life was going anywhere. What Steve's trying to say is that your real life is boring, Ben said. Boring, I blurted out. Boring. Boring, Steve reluctantly agreed. How about that for a mood setter for you as you're looking back on your life? You lived a boring life. Yay. Exciting, right? Well, today I want to tell stories. I want to tell some stories from people here in our church, and I want to tell a story that Jesus told 2,000 years ago that I think still has some real relevance for us in our life today. And at the root of all the storytelling... What I'm hoping that Jesus speaks to about to our hearts about today is these simple questions. Are we living lives that are defined by, that are filled with fear? Or are we living lives that are defined and filled with a trust that Jesus is good? What is your life defined by? Later in the book that I just read from, Excuse me. Donald Miller said, fear isn't only a guide to keep us safe. It's also a manipulative, manipulate, that word, emotion that can trick us into living a boring life. Sometimes your tongue just doesn't get it out. That can trick us into living a boring life. If your life is guided by fear, it is guaranteed to be boring. You are going to be stuck. Your feet are going to be submitted in place, glued to the spot, unable to move, unable to do anything because you are just simply tied down to where it is that you're at. And you'll probably have a really hard time ever living a life that is filled with obedience to Jesus because you don't actually trust that Jesus is good. Jesus wants us to live lives that are anything but boring but it requires giving up our fear and trusting in his goodness. So the question for us this morning as we start off, are we willing, are we ready to live lives that are anything but boring because they're filled with a trust in the goodness of Jesus? Let's pray and then we'll jump into Luke 19. Jesus, I just thank you for what you're up to this morning already. I thank you for what you want to do in our hearts, in our lives. I thank you for the plans that you have for us, for the good things that you have for us, for the things that you've placed in front of us. And I ask that today that we will take a step out that's past a place of fear into a place of trusting you. Show us what that looks like. Show us what that means today in the places that we're at in our hearts, in our lives, and what's going on just even this week, maybe even this morning the things that have happened that 
uh, have made us question how much we can trust you. I pray that today that we will walk away with a deeper sense of your goodness in all of life. We just say that we're yours, Jesus. We love you, and we want to encounter you here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 19 is where I'm going to start us off at. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open up to that. Verse 11 through 24. We have Bibles on the side and in the back if you want them at any time, or you can open it up in your phone. That's fine, too. But listen to how Luke starts off this story. This is, this is what he tells us that Jesus was thinking as he goes into this. Verse 11, the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God was going to start right away. This is a, a unique thing that, that Luke inserts in here, this like look into the mind of Jesus as he's getting ready to tell us this story. But it tells us something about why he's telling us this story. See, the followers of Jesus, the Israelites, had an idea, a framework for what the Messiah was going to come to do, the Savior of Israel, which is what Jesus was. And that framework really fit around this concept that he was going to come and bring them total, complete freedom today from the occupying Roman Empire. They were essentially slaves. They were ruled by somebody else who came in and took all their money, took all their land, took all their stuff and said, you're under our control now. And they thought that the Messiah was going to come and abolish all of that, going to come and set up a real true throne in the middle of Jerusalem again and be the king of Israel. But what they didn't know was that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Israel. He didn't come to bring the kingdom of the United States of America either, or the kingdom of Great Britain, or even South Africa, or Brazil, or any other country. He's not about a nationalist perspective. He's about a whole earth being saved thing. He came to bring the kingdom of God, not freedom in that one way. And so he tells this story because he wants his followers to start to ask this question that would have been like terrifying if you were a follower of Jesus and you caught what it was that he was asking. He wants them to start to understand and to ask this question, how am I going to live when Jesus isn't here anymore? What is my life going to look like when he's gone, when I'm waiting for him to come back? How am I going to live in those moments? And then he tells them this story. A nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. But before he left, he called together 10 of his servants and divided among them 10 pounds of silver saying, invest this for me while I am gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him. We do not want him to be our king, they said. After he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money, and I made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You're a good servant. You've been faithful with little, so you will be governor of ten cities as a reward. That sounds more terrifying than a reward to me, but I, that one always makes me chuckle. I'm like, ah, it does not sound that great, actually, but that's a lot of issues you got to deal with. 
Uh, a lot of poop to clean up. Uh, but the next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You'll be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and I kept it safe. I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours, harvesting crops you didn't plant. Imagine telling that to your boss. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man and who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops that I didn't plant, then why didn't you at least deposit the money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then turning to the others standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. Jesus loves to tell stories like this. We call them parables. They're stories that aren't actually about the story. They're stories that have deeper meanings underneath. Sometimes they have like three different layers that you have to start to understand. They're, they're confusing stories. They're stories that require you to ask lots and lots and lots of questions. He loved to tell these types of stories because he wanted us to dig in, to learn more about his kingdom. And in this parable, one of the main questions that we need to ask is who is the king? Well, Jesus says that he's a nobleman that has to go far away in order to be crowned king. He's a nobleman that has to stay far away for a while before he can come back. He can't just return immediately. He's going to be gone for a long time. He tells us that he's a king who's rejected like almost instantaneously by like everybody in his kingdom. How's that for a, a welcome reception? You know, they didn't even wait till he came back to say they didn't want him. They just immediately tossed him away. Who's the king that he's talking about? Well, he's talking about himself. Jesus is the king who has to go away before he can come back. He's the king who has to be gone for a while before he can return and start his kingdom fully on earth. Jesus is the king who has been rejected almost instantly. From the moment that he was crowned king, he was rejected by those that he is king over. And Jesus is the king who gave his servants gifts to go and do something with. With the simple, simple description, the simple instruction, go and do something with this money while I'm gone. The king's only command was to do something with what they had been given. That's it. He they weren't told how to use it. They weren't told how to invest it. They weren't told what to invest it in. They weren't given any instructions. This wasn't an Ikea uh, bookshelf that needed three pages, you know, not three pages, 35 pages and a couple of specialized uh, screwdrivers in order to get the thing put together. They were just simply handed a bag of money and said, go. They were just told to do something. Essentially, they were told to carry on the business of the king. Take the knowledge, the gifts, the experience, whatever he's poured into you, take this money and go do something with it. Promote the interest of the king, or as we say in the vineyard sometimes, do the stuff. And I think the beautiful thing about this to me is that the king trusts them to do exactly what he wants them to do without micromanaging them. 
He doesn't feel a need to give them a long, detailed explanation of how he wants them to carry this out. He doesn't give them tons of rules and say, this is exactly what I want at the end. He just says, go and do it. Because the king believes that they have access to everything that they need. Even if he's not there, they still have access to it. And this is where it starts to hit all followers of Jesus through all time. The king believes that you have access to everything you need, even if you don't see him right in front of you right now, to everything. That's why he was confident that he could leave in return and that his investment would be built upon. But not everybody thought that that was a worthwhile investment. They didn't all believe in him because only three were there when he returned. Did you notice that? He took the 10 pounds and he split it up. So he gave it to 10 people. One pound each, equal amounts. But only three are there when he returns. Seven left. We don't know what happened to the seven. I mean, I could hypothesize if you want me to. Uh, We could say that they're a part of the delegation that went to throw their money in front of the king's face and say, we don't want you to be our king. We could say that they just took their money and ran uh, because they they didn't want to be held accountable for how they spent it. We could say that they're just at that moment in their houses, in the basement, hoping that he doesn't know where they live because they they moved a couple of streets over during the years that he was gone. I don't know where they went, but for whatever reason, they weren't there when he returned. They were gone. And the disappearance of the seven is heartbreaking. Here's why. Because it means that they left altogether. No chance for dialogue. No coming back, no attempt to argue, no desire to engage, nothing. Doors slammed, can't come back in, they've left. Nothing there anymore. Eugene Peterson wrote about this story and he said in that, uh, in his uh, thoughts on it, that non-participation is not a casual matter. Non-participation is disobedience because there are no non-participants in the kingdom of God. The seven chose to leave the kingdom altogether. They shut the door and they walked away. Now Jesus gives us, here's the good news, Jesus gives us room to do a lot and for it to count as participation. Do you know that? You could disagree with Jesus and still be participating in the kingdom. You cannot understand what it is that Jesus is up to and still be participating in the kingdom. He gives us grace to argue it out. He, gives, he says that it's okay for us not to always agree with them. He's fine with us not understanding. He's even okay if we're upset with how he dealt with something and we want to fight with him about it. We want to really argue it out because we think that he was unjust in whatever it was that he does. All of that is okay within the kingdom of God. He's not upset by any of those things. All of that is considered participation in the kingdom of God. And that should make you feel really good. Because that means you can be a lot of different things and still be okay in the kingdom of God. But non-participation means slamming the door closed and walking away. It means ending the conversation. You can't end the conversation and still be engaged with Jesus. 
And there's really only one reason that the seven would end the conversation. And that's that they didn't trust the king. So the question for us that Jesus puts before us, as well as the original hearers of this story, is simply this. Is the king really worth trusting? Do you think that he's a king that we can trust? In verses 22 and 23, Jesus echoes what the servant says when he says, that If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops that I didn't plant, then why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? I love that response. Jesus is basically saying, like, if you think that I'm terrible, then act like it. Because if you really think that I'm the dictator that's going to come and just take all your stuff and be terrible to you, then you wouldn't have the guts to stand in front of me. You wouldn't be standing here throwing it back at me. That, that's not what you would do if you really knew that that's who I was. You would have hightailed it out of here. You would have been gone. This wouldn't be where you were still at. If I'm a terrible king, then act like it. And Jesus is echoing the fears of the third servant. But he's not saying that that's what God is. Just so we're clear on that. He's not saying that God is hard. He's not saying that God is an exploiter of people. But God does expect his followers to trust him. He expects us to trust him. And the third servant was so frozen in their fear, unable to act, that they couldn't do what it was that the king had asked him to do. How do we learn to trust Jesus? That's the trick, right? That's where the rubber hits the road. How do we learn how to do that? Well, I said I want to tell stories, and I actually want other people to tell stories. So I want us to hear a story from Sam Asuke, a member of our church, about a time that he was really uh, in need of God to show up uh, to prove his trustworthiness. So if you'll turn to the screens and watch this. So about a month or two into my freshman year of college, I was having a lot of trouble finding a Christian connection in campus, and also I needed to find a job to handle some small expenses that we were having problems with. Um, every now and then I would come back home to this church and I prayed about it one Sunday with the prayer team and some of the pastors. And the next day, one of my professors actually offered me a job to perform as a singer in his church. God answered my prayer that quick. It was a really amazing experience to have and I knew, I always knew he was listening, but it was just such an amazing feeling that he answered so quickly. I love that Sam immediately walked away with a deep knowledge that he was loved by Jesus and that Jesus actually cared about what he needed. He walked away knowing that. When I asked Sam if he had any stories that kind of fit this, his immediate response was yes, because he knew that he had experienced that, that there was something trustworthy about Jesus and that he had seen it in his own life. Following Jesus requires a willingness to trust that he's good. The next thing I think that we can learn from this story is honestly that playing it safe in the kingdom of God is a losing battle. It doesn't pay off. The kingdom of God is a risky situation. The, we see that here. The ones who risk the most 
We're rewarded the most, right? Verse 17, well done. You're a good servant. You've been faithful with little. I entrusted to you. Now here's 10 cities. The ones who were unwilling to trust the goodness of Jesus are condemned. You wicked servant, your own words condemn you. Now, what doesn't happen here is that Jesus condemns people for failure. I want to make sure that you get that. This isn't about, the third servant didn't fail. The third servant didn't try. That's pretty different. God's not angry because he wasted the money on a purse that he shouldn't have bought. He's not angry because the dude threw an amazing party and spent too much money on steak and snacks. He's not angry because the guy went all in on a really dumb investment that he should have known better about that kind of just blew up in, her, in his face. God's not angry because of any of that. The king's not angry about any of those things. Jesus condemns the servant because he's not willing to try. He's not willing to try. Two weeks ago, Sarah and I and Robin and Liz were at the Vineyard National Conference. And a guy named Mike Pilavachi, a British pastor, spoke, uh, who was pretty hilarious if you ever want to listen to him. Uh, and he said a couple of things that just stuck with me. And one was this. God's love language is obedience. God's love language is obedience. It's not results. It's not uh, the rate of gain at the end of the investment. It's simply obedience. You want to know what Jesus wants you to do with the pound of silver that he gave to you? Something. Just do something. That's all he asks from us. Try. Put it out there. Do you want to start living a life that counts in the kingdom of God? Then obey him. Start obeying what he puts in front of you. Because the kingdom of God is a risk-based economy, and we are encouraged to live risky lives. C.S. Lewis is an author from the mid-20th century, and he said, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self to Christ. But that is far easier than what we are trying to do instead. We're like eggs at present. You cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. You must be hatched or go bad. If I had a British accent, that would be even more complete because you just hear it and it sounds like a British guy saying it, right? There's no staying in the same spot in the kingdom of God. That's what Lewis is saying here. It's just not a possibility. There's only two options for us as followers of Jesus. We either grow or we don't. And we know what happens if we don't. We go bad, we die, whatever it looks like. We get really stinky and then we crack and then it covers the fridge and then nobody wants to clean up our mess. Whatever, you know, take the analogy all the way. There's, there's no in between. There's no frozen spots in the kingdom of God. You're going one way or the other. So which way are we going to grow? I asked Marcos Velasquez, him and his wife Erica and their two girls moved to the U.S. a year ago uh, from Mexico as a job transfer. And I just asked him simply like, hey, can you just tell us how you've seen God prove himself to be faithful over the past year? Your first year in a new country, not knowing anyone, uh, just only having a job, and that was about it. 
Uh, so if you want to watch the screen and listen to what Mark well, Actually, to one say. year ago, we arrived here to United States, and that was amazing because when we arrived, all the family was uh, excited. That was uh, emotion, but I think that was like adrenaline, that emotion, because when we arrive internally, we have some uh, worries, some questions. And right now, if I uh, go back to see this year, I see that uh, Jesus take care about these feelings and actually he put the right persons, the right church, and the right decisions in, in our minds. And actually, we right now we felt a very a care uh, in, in Jesus because we know that he support and he he's a kind of love. Right now we felt a very blessing uh, in this and actually we want to be more involved in Jesus because we saw the, the, the blessing of, of in this year, in particular in this year. I love how he ends that, and I promise I did not tell him to say those words. <clears throat> um, but I, I think it's just like, it's just true. Marco says at the end that because they've seen Jesus meet them in the middle of their hard year, in the middle of their transition, and in the middle of where they're at, unknown, you know, not knowing what life looks like, because they've seen Jesus meet them there, that now they have confidence to step out and to do even more because they know that he's good. They know that he's trustworthy. They know that they can follow him. Trust Jesus. Listen to what he's asking you to do. Obey him. And then watch as the king shows up with joy every single time. So where does it leave us this morning? How should we live our lives until Jesus returns? Here's how I think we should live. Do the business of the king. Live like Jesus lived. Speak what he spoke. Pray for people often, always, you know, uh, innumerable times. Uh, be generous. Forgive others. Seek out the lost. Share the love and the grace that you've experienced with other people. Pray for your coworkers to be healed when they tell you that they have the flu. You know, invite your neighbor to know Jesus. Tell them what Jesus has done in your own life. Show your kids what it means to actually trust Jesus, to live lives that are filled with a deep trust in who Jesus is. That'll affect them more than almost anything else will that you could ever lecture them on. Ask the Holy Spirit regularly to turn the dead spots into life. That's how we live while we wait for Jesus to return. There's one last story for us this morning. It's from Sue Turner. She threw a party for some ladies in the Serenity House, which is a drug and alcohol rehabilitation house. And I think it's just a perfect example of what it looks like to obey, to risk, to throw it out there. So watch this. Serenity House is a recovery program for women, and the vineyard has been there since um, the start. I had a granddaughter, and she was—I was giving her birthday parties every year, and I really overindulged her, like a lot. 
And the Holy Spirit kind of nudged on me like, yeah, it's a little much. And I said, yeah, it is. I think I'll use the money and the proceeds and the energy to go towards a, um, an outreach for the Australian woman. So it's like, uh, you know, what can I do? What's a little different? And he's like, I want you to give them a birthday party. And I'm like, wow, wow. He goes, all of them. He goes, I want them to know that I celebrate their life. And it really touched me. He's like, yeah, like, you know, when could be the last time they celebrated their birthday? Or maybe anyone even said happy birthday. He said, they're created in my image, and I want them to know that I celebrate their birthday. With some people, I gathered up, you know, ideas, and I really made it childlike, because that's what he wanted. So there were like 200 balloons, alien balloons. I think we had three cakes, uh, bubbles, we had sand buckets with shovels filled with candy, uh, funny silly string, goofy glasses, um, on and on it went, like a banquet. And God just blessed us with this incredible day. The, the weather was awesome. The women were like so happy to get out of the house and they were just really just loved it. They fed right into it. They played with the string and made goofy glasses. And there was really no agenda. It was just like, here you go, ladies. The food's ready when you want it. The outdoors is here. Then towards the end of the day, we had some prayer ministry people prepared to, you know, bless them with prayer. And that was really awesome. I think we had about an hour left. And, you know, if they wanted prayer or not, it's up to them. As you know it, the Holy Spirit was there. And he's showing up. Man, oh, man, did he bless them. They were lining up. And then I'm telling you, there wasn't one dry eye. The Holy Spirit touched them with words of knowledge, which... Um, it's simply a blessing from God, an encouraging word, or a word about something in your past that only God knows. In all my years at Serenity House, I want to tell you, I've never seen them so moved. So now they're lining up for prayer. Like, they just can't wait. I mean, the girls are coming out crying, but in a good way. And so, of course, we run out of time, and I'm like, oh... You know, I made a phone call. They're like, sure, stay as long as you want. We just can't pick them up. So the people were great. They volunteered to drive them home. I think we were there for another two hours at least. And it just was an awesome ending to a wonderful day. Generosity and obedience will never be met with stinginess. Ever. The kingdom of God is a place of great generosity. Jesus does something special when we're willing to do what it is that he's asking us to do. So friends, I want to encourage you, start saying yes to Jesus. And that may look completely different for each and every one of us. For some of us, it might be we, we hear Sue's story and we're like, I want to do that. I want to throw parties for people who need to be loved. I want to celebrate people who are not getting enough celebrating in their life. Do it. For others of us, it might mean that you need to go share the love of Jesus with your neighbors, with your friends, with your family, that you need to take time out of your schedule to be intentional about that. Say yes to Jesus in that way. For some of us, it might mean that Jesus is asking us to open up our homes so that people can come and encounter Jesus through deep relationships every week. Heck, for some of us, it might even mean church planning. Whatever it is, say yes to Jesus. Say yes to what it is that he's asking you to do. Obey, risk, and live your life like Jesus is actually worth trusting.
One last quote from Mike Pilavachi at the conference. He said, my longing to see Jesus move is greater than my fear. My longing to see Jesus move is greater than my fear. Is that true for us here today? Is it greater than the thing that keeps us cemented to the ground, that freezes us in the moment? Do we want him more than that? And I know most of you, and I would say for most of us, if not all of us, the answer to that is true. So let's be willing to live that out. The worship team wants to come back up. We're going to go into a time of singing, and I just want to give a quick encouragement as we go into this time. As I was praying about today, I just felt like we needed to be encouraged why we worship. Because some things we just do here because it's what we do. That's the style of church that we do. So we, we sing songs for 30 minutes and we all stare forward and we listen to the band play. But we don't do it just because it's what we do. We worship for two reasons among 20. But for two reasons. Because we know that it's important for us to declare the goodness of Jesus, the love that Jesus has for us, and to declare our love for Jesus back to him. And the second reason is because we found out that Jesus actually meets us when we worship him. And so I want to encourage you today, don't just sing songs. Don't just critique uh, whether or not the drummer is on cue with the, the guitarist. I'm saying that to myself as much as anybody else. I do that sometimes. Don't do those things. Don't think about what's coming next. Don't think about the person you want to talk to before you leave. This morning, engage with Jesus. So will you stand? And I just want to pray that, that we will experience Jesus here right now in this place. Oh, Jesus, we just say, uh, like I read, we just say that we want our longing for you to be so much greater than our fear. I pray for each and every one of us. Fears come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, but I pray for us this morning that our longing for you will be proven greater than our fear, whatever it might be. And we ask you, Jesus, to come. Come and show up here this morning. We want more of you, Jesus. We don't want to just go through doing the things that we always do for the amount of time that we always do them, singing the right number of songs or the wrong number or whatever. We want to engage with you. And so I ask you to come and engage with us. Show yourself to be good this morning, Jesus. Be the good king. Just say, come, Holy Spirit, and be here with us this morning.